Hello, good morning. My name is Antonia Ogundayizi, Service Manager for Anti-Racist Practice at Essex County Council as part of Children and Family Social Care. Today we have a very exciting podcast. We have various professionals in the room with me. We're going to be talking about adultification and various implications for our different services and for society. I'm going to start with a round of in- introductions, starting first with the youth offending team. If you please introduce yourself and your role. My name is Jermaine Kitto. I'm a senior practitioner at Essex Youth Offending Service. Um, within my role, I work and engage with young people as well as line manage. I am part of the senior leadership team involved in the decision making to support young people and give the best possible service we can to prevent reoffending. Thank you, Jermaine. Great to have you here today. Going to come over now to Essex Child and Family Wellbeing Service. If you please introduce yourself and your role. Uh, my name is Babs Kangwende and I work for the Essex Child and Family Wellbeing Service. Uh, I'm a health visitor and my role is to support the health and development of babies and children until they are five years old and start uh, to go to school, as well as parents' health and well-being. I give uh, health and advice and support, anything that we need, things like feeding, routine immunizations, contraceptions to mothers, and emotional well-being, uh, mental health support, and uh, a lot of development checks and signposting to other professionals. Awesome. Thank you for being here today, Babs. Thank you. And I'd like to introduce your colleague Good from morning. the same service. My name's um, Claire Heaton. I'm the named nurse for safeguarding children in West Essex. And my role is to support our practitioners with their work around safeguarding children. Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful to have you here. Um, Thank you. I'm going to come over now to social care, children and family social care. If you please introduce yourself and your role. My name is Tasha Wilson. I'm a newly qualified social worker in family support and child protection in North Essex. Um, my role is to safeguard children and support families who are going through times of hardship. Thank you, Tasha. Hello, my name is Bernice Cowell. I'm a child protection subject matter expert within the Social Care Platform Change Programme project. Um, I use my knowledge and expertise within children's social care to help support and guide the project team. Wonderful. Thank you for being here, Tasha and Denise. And we have the police here. If you please introduce yourself and um, your role. Yes. Um, My name is Superintendent Naomi Edwards. Um, I'm with Essex Police. I am the force hate crime, prevent and antisocial behaviour lead. Um, Prior to joining Essex almost two years ago, I was in the Metropolitan Police for 17 years, um, up to um, a detective chief inspector working in adult and children's safeguarding sexual offences, public protection, homicide, organised crime. Um, And I completed my master's dissertation looking at safeguarding the vulnerability of young people who are involved in gangs. Wonderful. It's great to have you here with us. So we are going to get into it. So Naomi, um, do you think that there is much public awareness of adultification? In in that sense, no. The actual term, um, I think the term is very new to especially the public sector and those that are involved in safeguarding. Um, in terms of if we look at it as vulnerability and safeguarding, recognising risk vulnerability, that risk assessment that we as professional partners do, I think it exists in that. Um, For me, when I I looked at it uh, from an academic perspective and then bringing it into the workplace, for me, I felt there was not an understanding 
Um, there was a cultural understanding as to what it meant because I'd grown up amongst it, seen it. It never had that, I guess, that theory of this is what adultification is and being able to actually pinpoint it throughout my life, my friends' lives, like young people that I actually worked with as well, and being able to say that this is what's happened in terms of, you know, I can look at the police from a policing perspective, um, but I can also see it from all partners' perspectives that mm -hmm. there is adultification within all of our processes. Um, and do we correctly identify it and identify more importantly the vulnerability? Wonderful. Thank you. And I really loved what you said about, you know, the link between theory and practice. Sometimes we know what things are because of experience of exposure, but the theory and being able to put a framework behind it is really, really key, particularly for people that are educators, learners, and just keeping it um, from an educational point of view. Absolutely. Thank you. Jermaine, may I ask, um, in your view, who is most affected by adultification? Um... So from my personal and professional experience, I'd say it was black young people. I think when you're looking at from the youth offending service, what you tend to find is, especially in the court capacity, the black young boys are always seen as being aggressive, violent, uh, gang members, criminal minded, whereas the white young people in court are seen as vulnerable and being exploited. And I think it's just about how the race is seen. Um, from my professional experience, what I found is that the young black boys are always they're far more likely to be remanded into custody, whereas um, the white young people are remanded into care of the local authority or given bail. So essentially they're still in the community, whereas when you flip it over to post-sentence, we had more black boys on community orders, where we had more white young people on uh, custody, being sentenced to custody. So it's a bit confusing as to how the black boys are automatic, automatically seen as being higher risk um, when they're appearing in court, Whereas before you've even looked at the offence, and I think, in my opinion, they are way more affecting. I think if I can give an example, um, I worked with a young person many, many years ago who um, he had been kicked out of school. He had been arrested for possession of a knife outside of school and common assault. He slapped a teacher. So he went to the Peru People Referral Unit. So um, my, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding of the Peru is, you know, they go in there when something's happening in a mainstream school. You know, you, you see their needs, see what they need and almost prepare them back for the mainstream environment. So he came to the US after being in the proof for after he'd been there for a year already. Right. So he came to us. He's on a two year order. So I was working with a young person. I was kind of waiting to see when he'll be going back to the mainstream school. So I've been regular meetings with the Peru and they'd always say he was a role model student. He was um, everyone looked up to him. He never went to any problem, no, no trouble or problems. In the three years he was there, he had only got into one incident. So my question was, so why has he not been taken back into the mainstream school then? And I kept getting, um, ah, he's too aggressive. Oh, look at what he'd done in his, in his last school. And it was almost like, but you've just told me in one breath that he's a great student and he's a role model to everyone else. But when he's talking about how he's going to progress back, he's gone back to being aggressive. And I think he was getting frustrated because he kept saying, Jermaine, like, why is it that there are other kids that are coming here getting sent back to major school and then coming straight back for doing something else. So I kept sitting down with them and, you know, what they were failing to realise, especially um, around the time of his offence, was his older brother went to prison. He had no father, so his older brother was almost like his father figure. Um, he was being pressured to, to join a gang because the older brother was a drug dealer. So, he, you know, there was a debt now from being arrested. Um, he came from a family with no money. So at the time of when the incident happened, he was going through a lot. But that was just overlooked completely and it was just about what he'd done in that one moment and i think 
what I kept saying to the school was, you know, what's the point of the yacht? It's about rehabilitation. In the two years that he's been with us, he's not been arrested again. There's been no repeat behavior of any knives and he hasn't touched one teacher in the school because you all seem to love him. So why can't you go back? Why can't you go back into a mainstream school? We had to fight before and in the end, I think they waited till year 11. And if you and know anyone about the educational system, year 11 is the hardest year to get back into mainstream. So we are fought and I fought and I fought and we got him back into one mainstream school in year 11 and credit to the boy, no credit to me. He got seven GCSEs and I still keep in contact and now he's gone to university to do digital marketing. And I think, and as I said, it's nothing to me, it's not to him. But it's just the fact that he wasn't seen as being rehabilitated, being a child, mm -hmm. being someone that was going through a lot at the time of the incident. He was just seen as a young person that was aggressive from one incident. And I think it just goes to show the light that can, when, when the light is shown in one way, something can go on and prosper. When it's, when it's shown in another, you're almost kept in pigeonholed. Yeah. And I think um, that's why it's really important to kind of push for our young people, no matter what the race is. Such a rich narrative and very real. You know, you really made it real. And I think some of the things that I'm picking up that you've said is, you know, the importance of duty. So bringing back agencies back to why is that child here and what is your duty? So the PRU and People Referral Unit, they're meant to help that person to restore, mm -hmm. you know, and we talk about the youth offending team, supporting young people to not reoffend. How is the decisions that we're making today enabling that for the long term? And also the importance of advocacy. So you being in that position has made an influence and it just shows that we are all agents of change. There's things that we can do in our positions in the public or in work that we can do to create a better outcome for children and families. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing. Very inspirational. Thank you. <laughs> Um, just want to come over to Claire and Babs. Um, just wanted to get your thoughts on who you feel ad adultification is most harmful to. Um, I just want to say thank you to Jermaine yes. for giving the most brilliant example yeah. of, of yeah. who it's harmful to. So um, adultification impacts directly on, on black children, denying them an innocence, which we freely give to children who are white. Um, and we as organisations, if we're not open to the concept of adultification, if we're not embracing that, if we're not aware, then we are almost condoning it. And I was interested in, in what Naomi was saying about we haven't had a name for it until recently. We know it's existed, but having a name, I don't know, will that make it easier for us to acknowledge it, to think about it, to look at ourselves? and and see how we can move forwards as a as a culture as a race as a you know, to to improve things um and i think babs had some some really great examples that perhaps you could share with us oh yes <laughs> <laughs> because i think it starts like especially health uh, professionals where they're just supposed to be looking at textbook, reading about these and children in universities. So if textbooks have got just a basic on one thing fits everybody, which definitely it doesn't. So let's say textbooks would have things like uh, uses in training clinicians only shows signs and symptoms of Caucasians people and they've never mentioned differences in, in different uh, skin types. So some things when they tell you like, are you looking for pale, cyanosis, lips, you know, changing and blue, I mean, yeah, blue, pink or something that really doesn't show on a black person. So sometimes uh, what they are saying does not reflect on black people as a result, especially the COVID system, I mean, um, a period where I worked with a lot with um, um, the BAME society. 
we saw it showed that there's a lot of uh, black and ethnic groups that died because by the time they are at the end stage, nobody has noticed the symptoms. So I think professionals need to be more mindful in the way of what to look for in a black person because they will come in with a cold, simple thing like a cold at work, you come in mm -hmm. and then they are one person will be like, oh, no, 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 don't come in, don't come near here, because they are looking and you can see those visual signs. Yeah. But with a black person, they have to be dropping on the floor mm -hmm. to be experiencing the same remorse and, you know, uh, for somebody to actually say that. And also, like, as an example with, with some children as well, they tend to develop more, mm -hmm. like, bosoms, you know, um, bigger than uh, other, other white uh, children. And so, so some self-image, really, they can... Um, because of the background, the cultural background, they appear to be more like just to be perceived as more adult, mm -hmm. like uh, uh, comparing with a white child, so that sometimes it makes them not to be listened to and uh, they don't have patience with them. And if they come with a different problem, they just don't want to take the next step to investigate or to have medical intervention because it's just, oh, they'll be fine, they can deal with it and all that, and uh, which is a shame, really. And this pattern tends to kind of uh, repeat itself when you are an adult now. Like, uh, for example, my I, I, I had somebody very close to me and uh, they've suffered from, from uh, adenoids, a young child, but they've professionals, best by going to the GP, going to their consultants and all that, they'll be just saying, oh, he's fine, he doesn't need, uh, um, operation but up to now that child is like 20 and is still giving him problems that mm -hmm. he's now like you know losing confidence and uh, he should have been putting so much in the society and then you have another child now who i who had the same problem and then they will just frustrate you you know to to so that you give up because surgery you just need a simple operation of porex removed or adenoids but you have to put a complaint mm -hmm. for you to be heard so that it carries on and then um as i said the culture repeats like for myself <laughs> my self-experience where i was really having problems going to any about numerous times i went to any tell my my gp that i need uh, i've got something wrong oh no it's so I'm now perceived as that angry black lady who yeah. always comes in and wanting this and that. But in the end, I had to say, okay, I'm going to complain for them to do something. So you always have to work for for it. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas comparing with other races, then you know, it's like, oh, okay, you're not feeling well, and then that's you know, some most cases it happens. But it it's like you have to go that extra mile to put a complaint, and then I to insist that they do uh, um, investigation a, a scan. And then a scan came in that I had ghost stones, and then I ended up having a cholecystectomy. Uh, so, which maybe could have been avoided, but you see yeah. these things, it started from way back where they could have listened to me and uh, just work with me as a patient. Yeah. But being a professional, it's good because you come and see the other side of uh, health professionals. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's another thing. So, and uh, with children as well. So I don't know, there's a, that big thing which causes a psychological damage where children uh, may be failed, especially when it comes to maybe it's more for, you know, the, 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 the case study of the girl who was a strip searched. And oh, yeah, okay. yeah, so probably you want to, yeah. So, so this, yeah. So, I mean, 
probably you explore uh, more about that. I was really interested yeah. and has struck me since we've been talking now as well, mm. when Bab said, has been saying, when we were speaking earlier, you said I had to fight. I yeah. had to fight to get what white children were getting. Mm. And Jermaine has said exactly the same. He had to fight mm -hmm. for that boy in the in the crew. Yeah. And I guess it's a struggle, sorry, but we, as black professionals, you would have experienced throughout your childhood yeah. into your adult um, profession where you're in environments where it's predominantly white or predominantly white male. And you're always, it's almost like you feel that you have to justify your place at the table. Mm -hmm. So you're, without somebody saying to you, fight, your first position is I've got to fight. Like yeah. the young boy you were talking about, Jermaine, his position was frustration because I'm doing everything that yeah. I'm supposed to yeah. be doing. I'm setting, I'm meeting all of my milestones. I'm meeting all of my targets, but I'm being held back. And that comes to the frustration. When you have that frustration, you then get labelled as the angry black lady or yeah. the mm. young aggressive, aggressive black boy that then needs to be tamed by yeah. a, a number of security yeah. or police officers. And this is where I mean. So it, mm. it's not just in one establishment if we look mm. at all of our professions it exists there for all of our young people. Yeah. yeah and that is unconscious bias as well like i've had like of course we sit around mm. with other professionals we're talking about you know the caseloads and all that they'll say oh this boy every time he comes in he's so aggressive I said, what did he do oh no no the way he sits or maybe the, he's not really his his image is got an afro and his hair is long and he See, appears rough. I, I, but what has that got to do with his health and what he wants to 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 discuss with you? But already they've dismissed him because the way he looks. I don't know if um, unconscious bias is mm. absolutely that, or if it is just racism. Yes. Yeah. You know, is it a term that somebody has created that we've all adopted, which? makes an allowance or an excuse for somebody to say oh yeah but it's because I you know I'm used to people like me or you know we we all work in a professional environment we all understand about equality we all understand about treating people fairly so I think it's almost sometimes a get out clause mm -hmm. uh, in a number of in, in situations personal private where people just say oh yeah but that's just my unconscious bias or you know, I, I wasn't thinking about that. You know, I didn't think. Is there an excuse? Yes, excuse. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Such rich um dialogue, and I know that because it is it is a very passionate subject um for all of us in the room. There's so much we could say, and I just wanted to thank you both for sharing your personal story because I think those stories make it real. It it, it really helps us to see that this isn't a theory. It's not just a theory. It's actually in practice. And I think what I was struck by was that, you know, this is a health. Health is like everything. You know, so if it's affecting outcomes for health then it needs extra attention if it's actually affecting the surgeries people have to take the fact that you know people are seen as having this innate strength as being resilient as streetwise if it's now affecting their health even their, their psychological health their physical health then it's a it's a big it's a big deal that needs to be um, unpicked thank you just going to come over to tasha um what influence does adultification have on social care practice? Um, yeah, thank you. I think well, the, the influence is multi-layered. I mean, first of all, our own practice is negatively impacted by adultification. Uh, we won't treat adultified children with the compassion, kindness and guidance that they desperately need. Um, and we know that when we treat children or anybody with less empathy and compassion, that has no, more negative outcomes for them. Um, I think further than that, as social workers, we obviously work in collaboration with police, education, health and families. Um, you know, the referrals always come in from these different institutions. 
Um, and so if we're not aware of ad adultification, we can fail to advocate for the child. If school is constantly flagging issues with a black child and saying this, 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 um, that's what we're always getting in. Um, and it's our job really to kind of manage those anxieties and manage those expectations. But if we are facing, you know, all of these different institutions that are dealing with adultification and police are, you know, reporting or arresting children more, more often, health is missing things, education is saying that this child is aggressive, social care really needs to be able to stand back and say, hey, like, why are we actually speaking about this child in this way? You know, they're, they're a kid, they deserve compassion, they deserve empathy. Um, you know, we take all of the information from the different services and then we write it into a report. Um, and if we don't advocate for the child, if we don't recognise that they are a child, um, then we can feed into negative narratives about them. Um, cement this in the reports and the stories we tell about the child and the messages that we give to that child about who they are um, and the kind of treatment that they deserve. Um, reports from social care can have a huge impact. Um, the balance of chances is really impacted. Um, and um, in the worst case scenarios, they can result in, the, the, you know, repercussions from school or in the court that result in prison time. Um, I think there has been various records, you know, within social care. My name is Why by Lemon Sisse. Yes. Um, and that's something that he talks about a lot. You know, he was just a child living his life and he had all of these really negative labels applied to him as a as a black child growing up within a white family. And at the time, we also didn't have the language around adultification for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, if social care is unable to, or if social care feeds into the narrative of the adult by child, um, then these children are going to have bad outcomes because, I mean, we are ultimately just taking all of the information from the different institutions and, and feeding that back. Absolutely. Thank you, Tasha. And that really highlights the importance of multi-agency working, that partnership, that collaboration. We've had so many care reviews and Constantly, the theme is we need to speak more to each other. We need to share more information. We need to work in collaboration. And I think that was really rich what you said about it starting with ourselves. This kind of work demands that self-reflexivity. And without understanding who we are ethnically, racially, um, how do we even relate to somebody else? Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tasha. Um, in, in the theme of social care, I'm going to come over to you, Venice. Um, in what part of social care in the system would you, would we or anyone likely see adultification play out? Right, bear with me, because this was such a, as we know, we've been talking, such a huge area. I've got quite a lot to get through, but I'll promise to be quick. Um, I think that the adultification in social care systems, in my mind, often goes to a few places. So a case management system, a multi-agency working and the language that we use. And within that, the themes of girls and being non-white. So as a society, we, we sexualise and place adult roles, responsibilities and expectations onto girls way before we do boys. So simple things such as the continued saying, girls just mature faster than boys, is a way of not just distinguishing the slight differences between male and female puberty speeds, but it's a way of placing adult roles of self-management, care and insight onto girls, often through a patriarchal lens, which have become our norm. Um, in social care, we often encounter what we call socialised adultification, so the parentified child. Um, this is when children, frequently girls, and particularly those in low-income families, take on adult-like roles to help with family needs, such as becoming a caregiver to siblings or parents, taking on chores that are normally reserved for the primary caregiver, or, and this is the area where we normally see boys having a higher rate of adultification than girls, finding um, having to find ways to financially con contribute to the households. Um, in regards to how we write, during my time in social care, I've seen plans and assessments about girls, particularly black girls who are struggling, be that emotionally, socially or at school. 
as she's having to provide some form of care to the household, as I said before. It's been generally received by all working with her that these things are just things that she must do. There's an assumption of maturity, not an individual evaluation of maturity based on assessment and observation of the child. Um, the expectation is that due to her advanced mind, she has the ability to navigate and cope in adult-like situations in a way that we expect an adult to. Her childhood is not disregarded as such, but the priority lens through which we're viewing her, due to our unchecked adaptation bias, is skewed. And then we come into adding the layer of being a black or brown child on top of this, combining the two categories of sex and race. Most notably, as I think we were going to touch on before, in our recent history, at the, the case of child Q, the 15-year-old girl removed from school during an exam, subject to that awful strip search by two Met Police officers after a teacher thought they smelled cannabis on her. Um, it was horrendous and unnecessary, take, undertaken without any designated safeguard professional and school appropriate, uh, they're all an appropriate adult. Um, treating a black 15-year-old schoolgirl as though she was a hardened, experienced criminal in a space that's supposed to nurture and protect her. Her rights diminished and not upheld. This is racial adaptation. She was seen through a lens of deviancy and not acknowledged as a deserving victim due to her race. Um, and after this, you know, we had all of that um, public-facing discourse in social care. We had lots of diversity and inclusion work happening, think pieces popping up. Um, I remember our teams are clamouring to do some um, education and training exercises around this, which is what we'd expect from our profession that has safeguarding children at its heart. However, I think in social care, we're really good at conceptualising and intellectualising this treatment, but struggle in practice to execute the changes required to challenge our biases in real time to minimise the harm that they cause. Um, the observance of difference in treatment between white and black children starts early on. Uh, the attempt to mimic and be like as integration of behaviour is viewed as successful. So, you know, I've been into schools and had kids that are just trying to be so much like their white friends, especially when we've been working in predominantly white areas. If I can just act like them, perhaps I'll be treated like them and the burden of my colour or my skin won't, will go away. Um, we understand the difference as professionals on a surface level, but I think in the social care arena, we don't understand fully how these visual differences, such as hair and skin, um, impact on a sense of self and how black children navigate their world day in and day out due to it. Black girls are being treated as though they're black women. Um, and if you think about how we treat society in society, how we treat women, and then add on that layer of being black, you go some way of understanding the scale of adaptation of black girls. Um, and in frontline social care settings, what does that mean? I've sat in meetings, unfortunately, where we've had multi-agency partners such as police and health and education, um, and conversations have gone along the lines of, oh, I remember being in a school once um, and uh, a black child being sent home for her uh, inappropriate uniform. The school had called it provocative, and her skirt, it wasn't uniform standard, it consisted of one of those blue, like, tubey grip, like, body conish kind of skirts. Um, but all of her other friends, all of her white friends are wearing them. And, and she was deemed, and I quote, developed. She knows what she's doing with that uniform. And there's no consideration that she just wanted to look like her friends. Um, and just to segue into, some of you may be familiar with a quote by Toni Morrison that I think is quite appropriate here. A little black girl yearns for the blue eyes of a little white girl, and the horror at the heart of her yearning is exceeded only by the evil of fulfilment. Tony Robinson read that quote in 1917. It was playing out in this girl's life in the early 2000s when I was a social worker. And that girl's actions were not were seen as calculated, not just of a young girl wanting to fit in. And as social care professionals, I don't think we give much consideration to how adult location leads to victim blaming in their settings. I know that I felt really disenfranchised to challenge that, and I could have, because again, I was the only black person sitting in a panel with all white people for that school mm. and healthcare professionals. Um, and we place little priority on children, uh, adult, uh, we place adult location on their vulnerability. Um, and I've also had another unfortunate experience, this is sitting through missing children meetings. I think this comes up quite 
quite often in our because they're quite um high risk challenging environments when children go missing especially when our teenagers go missing um and my colleagues and safeguarding partners place lots of responsibility onto girls and non-white children to protect themselves in those spaces instead of looking at their responsibility to safeguard and protect them phrases that when it comes to attached on this when it comes to black and brown boys such as oh he's streetwise that gets found a lot. He's a tough lad. He's a big boy. He can look after himself. Um, or well, for girls, we get, oh, well, she doesn't look older than her years. You'd never know she was a child. Um, and when we're discussing contextual safeguarding issues yeah. or, or meetings when there's been an issue at home or, or school on a black or young black and brown boys become angry and animated. He's aggressive. We can't manage him. We write down in his case notes that he's angry with no exploration into this anger. It's a statement of being that we attach to these children, not othering and demonising them, leading to the assumption that black and brown children are somehow complicit in their own abuse. Um, and yes, some of these words I've heard said against white children that I've worked with, the difference being that it has never been qualified with the undertone of this is what they deserve, this is how they are, and as such, this is how the, this is the way in which we're going to treat them. There's a certain level of handwashing that occurs that we cannot possibly change their outcome or safeguard effectively due to these issues being who they are and not symptoms of how we're viewing them. Um, and this knowledge and, and understanding that we believe we hold as social workers, I've seen get lost when we all feel unfairly challenged and ineffective. And by that, I mean unable to perform the roles we wish we would do to be able to safeguard and support effectively. And I will leave. Do you know what? I have to That was simply yeah. profound, very moving, touched me right in my gut, in my heart, um, because there was just so much in that, so much that um, I know we could continue outside of this um, dialogue, just about the different dimensions, race and then gender, and also how it affects outcomes. So we know that um, black girls are often over-sexualized or sexualized, and um, we can't ignore the legacy, legacies of slavery and how that has racialized black um, boys and girls and how that has not allowed them to have the innocence that children are afforded. And I think, yes, some people may say that slavery was a long time ago, but it's left a big, damp on the um, black racial identity and until we understand where we started from how do we know where we're going to go um, next and I, I just yeah just profound love the Tony Morrison quote as well um, and yeah so you know we spoke about so many different issues we spoke about it from a health perspective social care police and so forth yos and so forth um, Naomi, um, from your point of view, what would positive change look like? So we have all this theory, as you mentioned earlier, what would change look like in a positive way? I think it's being able to identify it clearly when it presents itself and call it what it is. Yeah. Um, Venice spoke about, you know, the missing persons. And for me, in, in policing, that's the key that I look at as well. And it's, do we place, <coughs> excuse me, do we place the same emphasis on risk evaluation for black children and white children? Is there a disparity there? For me, when I look at it, I feel that there is because I feel that it's the black children that are found a lot later than the white children. Um, is there some form of bias in terms of how we how we view different communities? Mm -hmm. I think it's important that we're, we're open and honest to say that as police officers, we need to look at that picture. We need to look at the systems and processes that we have in place. Does it um, does it hinder mm -hmm. certain communities? But also when I look at it from the perspective of, you know, when case notes are written on social service notes or on health records, 
if that child is a victim of crime or if that child is a suspect, those notes will be played out as well within the arena of the criminal justice system. Mm -hmm. And then what does it say in terms of, you know, we want, if we're in a jury type situation, we want a jury to see and to feel the compassion that we as professionals mm -hmm. have for that young person. If we've written in case files, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're mature for the years, they're, they're a tough lad. You know, if we've sexualized, you know, she's very mature, very well developed. Um, you know, having worked in um, sexual offences as well, where I had a young 15 year old black girl that was very well developed, that was put actually into her, into the case notes. So when you present the case bundle and when you present the victim at court, you're already on a back foot because you're trying to get her back to the point of see her vulnerability. She is a child. Mm -hmm. And if you can't see anything else, see that this is a child. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so practices that we have. So for me, um, positive change looks like people, myself in my organisation, and I guess um, everybody here that's around the ta table, being able to educate our colleagues. Um, I don't feel that adultification is known across policing. I feel that you may have, where you've got more diverse communities such as London, mm -hmm. you may have that knowledge more in, in some of our private sectors, um, but I don't feel in, in an environment in, in, in County of Essex where we are, um, we have much more minority, um, that all of our professionals are aware of it and the impact, it's the impact that it has on young people. Um, I think it's important because by the time they get to us as police, they've been through health, they've been through education, they may have been through social services, they may have been through youth offending, but they've definitely been through education and they've definitely been through health. So it's about creating that, I guess, safety and vulnerability and seeing the compassion before you see, oh, but we can treat them as an adult. And I, I remember like growing up myself, you know, my mum comes from a West Indian background and the same as the same emphasis that was placed on my mum, you know, you've got to cook, you've got to clean. Then you do your schoolwork, that same attitude and, and, and mentality. My mum felt that that's what good parenting was. And then she, you know, transferred that onto me. I don't make my son cook. Her, you know? <laughs> it's homework. But I, I guess it's about identifying it, making sure we now educate our colleagues um, just to realise the impact that it has because we talk about children now and we talk about adultification but then what what, what would we do when it's us now as young or, or, or older black professionals that have experienced that what would you call us now you yeah. know what would that term look like? Have we been <laughs> have we been traumatised? Are we the victims mm. of adultification mm -hmm. that was never identified yeah. Yeah. Um, and how do we change the script for young people today so I think it's about calling it out and okay. identifying it. Thank you thank you and, and like everything I think it's as you said sort of dialogue talking about it mm -hmm. and having that safe environment that psychological safety where people can feel like they can say actually are we um, seeing this young person as an adult in this and having the support of the organisation of their colleagues to um, have that dialogue. Thanks, Naomi. And for social workers who might re really be encouraged by this podcast and want to start doing something new from tomorrow, Jermaine, what kind of practical tools can help them to disrupt adultification bias? Um, 
So I've, I've thought of two practical tools. The first one being considering social graces, and that's looking at social and personal identity of the young person, I think, focusing on their you know race, gender, religion, seeing them for them, understanding where they come from. And I think the second one that I thought of was cultural genograms, and that's something that's big within the youth offending service. Um, and that's looking at you know the family and their cultural context and surrounds. I think what's powerful about those two tools is that not only are you allowing the young person to understand where they come from, but I think the practitioner is also understanding and learning about their culture. And I think what you find, especially in youth offending services, you get young people from all different cultures, races, religions. And I think if you're using the same tool for every different young person, you're learning about various different cultures. And what that does, is it removes the element of, you know, a certain young person because of a certain race, they're seen as more more risky. Mm. I think when you understand what we tend to do in the youth offending service, and that's credit to the managers, is that every case you have to consider diversity. Risk should not be based on, you know, colour. Let risk be based on the actual offence committed, you know, and, and the aggravating factors around what has happened, not based on what they look like. And I think um, what we do in the youth offending service is any case discussion or any assessment that is not getting signed off, countersigned, <laughs> or even considered if you haven't thought about diversity. So I think the main two tools that we use, and I would recommend for any social worker, I'm a social worker myself, is social graces and cultural genograms. And I think they're powerful tools because you learn as well as um, allow someone else to learn about where they come from. Wonderful. Thank you, Jermaine. And also shows, I think, the importance of leadership. So the importance of that quality assurance. So leaders saying, actually, this is the standard. And if we're not meeting it as professionals, they're not going to be signing anything off. And that also supports practitioners to know that um, this is the baseline and I need to equip my, you know, um, enhance my knowledge and uh, and talk about this rather than trying to dodge things sometimes, yeah, <laughs> which can affect the outcomes in so many ways. So. Thank you, Jermaine. Um, and, you know, one could argue that um, social care or even education um, should prioritise uh, um, learning about adultification bias. But Claire and Babs, why is adultification bias relevant to all safeguarding professionals? So I think as, as safeguarding professionals, we're in a very privileged position. We are very influential um, within our organisations. We offer guidance and support to our practitioners. Um, before we can do that, um, when we're thinking about adultification, we need to be very reflective and look at ourselves and how our own biases form us. Um, often when we're talking about racism, um, people will just say, oh, I'm not racist. Mm. This doesn't affect me. Mm. And, and we allow that to lie. Mm. Whereas actually, where is the reflection? Where is the understanding that we all have? biases yeah. and I think it comes from us to start looking at ourselves and then talking a, a very freely and openly within our organisations about racism, about adultification um, because it's something that makes us feel uncomfortable mm -hmm. and this is something we need to get around. Um, so with the understanding we all have biases and recognition of that fact is key to us offering the best service to our clients. And just, yeah, so just uh, that's self-awareness of everybody, especially the professionals that we work with. And uh, especially schools are finding them because we link a lot with schools with our role. And they are the 
main people, like the vital people, where they should just support the children. If you see young people like uh, building the circle of friends, five, six, it's okay if they are black, but not to say, oh no, you can't be in a group because already they are thinking, oh, they're discussing something else. You know, they're just being nice to each other. They may be talking about maybe, hey, what hairstyle? But sometimes we have heard a lot about children complaining that, oh, they don't like to see us in more than four, three, four, because they always, you know, want to separate us because they think we are up to no good. Why is that? And also at schools, you have children where, like my children, they've said, oh, mom, um, uh, my teacher says you're very immature, you're insensitive, you act like a big girl because somebody was coming to me and say, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. And I've told my teacher, mom, and she's almost in tears. And the teacher tells them, oh, they don't know anything about that. So they don't talk about it on the dinner table about George Floyd, and they don't know. But if you have to have certain values about this is wrong, this is mm -hmm. right. And if somebody does that, they have to be punished for that, mm -hmm. you know? And if, 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 if now you're saying a black girl should keep quiet and be mature about it, mm -hmm. then it's not fair. You should be the advocate for this uh, child who's vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And also what we're talking about with Claire in our services, well, just to make it more diverse in terms of the tools that we see, like leaflets to put up, yeah. up with showing black women, uh, you know, and um, so that at least it's visual. Mm -hmm. It's okay to see a black face in, in, in the books and all that. Even like the doors, when I do development checks, I want to give the white child Back door, so that they feel. Oh, some of them have been like, "Oh, they said, no, it's okay, it's yeah, okay. Yeah. You can have a black door." And the same with black children. Sometimes they don't want black doors because they are portrayed without the hair and they are ugly looking. And oh, no, you want the black nice doors. So <laughs> let, let's start have you know start from the shop. Yeah, yeah. And the shops should have that diverse of black child a black black door so that a black child is okay to hold that. So. You know, that's the pattern they will follow that, oh, it's not good enough. And, yeah. that, and then it history repeats itself and we can move on. So, yeah. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Um, what you said touched me because I think the biggest bias is when you see a group of black boys more than two, they're a gang. Mm -hmm. when you see a group of white boys, for example, yeah, they're going okay. somewhere. And I think yeah. the stigma is the biggest problem because you get black gang members, you get white gang members, you get black boys that are going to football, mm -hmm. you get white boys that are going to football. And I think, the yeah. automatic stigma is when you see a group of people from a certain color or race or religion, they're doing that. It's always in that negative light. And I think what you said touching because it's true. Yeah. I live in a white area, very, really, really white area. Yeah. A lot of grammar schools in it. And so lots of black children go to our grammar schools, yeah. girls, grammar schools and boys. And the complaints that we get from residents because the black children, they're more vibrant in the morning. Mm. They're louder in the morning. Yeah. And it's like they put police at our local train stations because they were getting too rowdy. They weren't getting rowdy. They were kids going to and from school, being kids going to and from mm. school. Mm. The amount of times I've physically put myself in the way of a conductor when, the, when we're getting on the train because I'm like they are children mm -hmm. and if this is if this was a white group of kids going to school like there is down the road that's not the grammar schools they're loud and they're boisterous but they mm -hmm. don't get picked up yeah mm -hmm. making these children into something that they're not demonizing them because of their skin color yeah. it's not fair one last question that I'll leave everyone with. What is one thing you could do differently in your organisation today? Start with you, Jermaine. And being comfortable having uncomfortable conversations. Awesome. Babs? Yeah. Just be more, just spreading that awareness. Awesome. Yeah. And unconscious bias. Because people will be, oh, no, I'm not racist, but unconscious bias, what they do behind. Thank you. Claire? There's so much we could do, but um, to start with, we'll be doing an article for our um, 
quarterly news that goes out through our practitioners and we'll include the link to the podcast. Fantastic, thank you. Tasha? Um, I'm going to echo uh, what, what uh, everybody else has said so far and I think just to add to that, um, I think just being really reflective and I think the majority of social care workers are actually, you know, white people who are uncomfortable having these conversations and so being able to have those conversations but also reflect not just on the way that other people's skin colour impacts them but also how our whiteness impacts us and being able to say you know I'm sitting in a position of privilege and like what has that privilege brought me mm-hmm. um, and not viewing it as like the default and that also leads me to domain with the culturally in terms of things like this. Thank you Tasha. Mm-hmm. Mine is aimed at our senior leaderships and our CEOs so it's been for them to be committed to discussing discussing and challenging of our personal and structural adaptation biases and and uh, without fear of reprisal, as organisations, we can do a lot of talk about we're committed to these conversations. And then you're in practice, and you're a social worker, and you're in these meetings, and you say something to challenge, you get a complaint, and there's no backup for you there. Oh, yeah. So the commitment yeah. to be able to challenge without fear. Wonderful. Thank you, Naomi. I think for me, it's recognising in an organisation where um, you can change a young person's life for the negative. It's recognising, and one thing that I will definitely be sharing with my colleagues is recognising that what you do, your actions in an investigation can have a lasting footprint in that child's life. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Brilliant. Come to the end now. Thank you all so much for taking the time to discuss this important um, topic of adultification. I'm really looking forward to seeing how we can continue to inspire not only ourselves, but our colleagues and improve life outcomes for the children, generations to come, and based on this discussion. Thank you.